Before I entirely lose my mind, let's do another episode of Crash. Hi, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Crash, the UK Geek Podcast. This is episode 337, recorded on Thursday the 8th of October 2020 at 010759. As promised, here is the second part of the back-to-back episode, and we are departing from Doctor Who to talk about just general geek stuff. As you have no doubt gathered by now, from the previous episode, the lightweight throwing towel has not been thrown in. That's another Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. And because it didn't get thrown, we are here again. And that is despite something I want to tell you about, something that happened on Twitter that really rubbed the salt in. I got a DM on Twitter, which is something that rarely happens, that I thought was a message of support from a fan, but it turned out to be just an artifact of some deep-seated design flaw in Twitter. Of course, due to Twitter's revolting gamification, of which we'll talk about a bit later, I kept hitting the refresh desperately until I discovered the problem and removed it by DMing myself, which apparently is the fix of notifications of direct messages that won't go away. Never has my hatred for social media been higher. Ah, okay, what else can I tell you? Ah, yes, I have new reading spectacles from Specsavers. They are not ideal for computer, but will do until my scheduled eye examination in December. Now, at last, I can ditch my backside crushed glasses for these new £30 nerdy specs from Specsavers. I also wanted to impart a little tip. Some opticians, either through being lazy or trying to squeeze extra pennies from you, will not tell you your pupillary distance. While you can roughly measure your own, you shouldn't have to do that, and this should be included with your eye exam. The reason you need that measurement is you need it when you order glasses online, which is something a lot of us have to do at the moment. A bright spark of a manager at Specsavers actually told me they charge extra for this, then begrudgingly measured it for me as a favour a year or so ago. And, by the way, while I'm moaning about that particular optician, this is the same place that, when I told them I was having trouble seeing myself while shaving, an assistant suggested I move the mirror nearer, rather than work out I might need reading glasses, which was in fact the case. Anyway, back to that manager telling me that I needed to pay extra for that measurement. The reason that I'm mocking this particular manager, is that, as I intimated before, since COVID-19, guess what? In order to buy your specs from Specsavers online, you need to tell them your pupillary distance. It says it right there, online, in their own order form. That guy was a complete clown. 
let us all again mock him. Okay, and back to the spec savers. Generally, spec savers have been okay in supplying glasses. Certainly better than boots. Aside from encountering these two nitwits who work in spec savers in the shop that I'm talking about. Yeah, my experience has generally been okay. Now that I've mentioned COVID-19, let's go on to a COVID-19 update from the UK. Now, I said that I'd stopped the virus diaries, and I have, but this stuff really is news. Coronavirus infections exploded in the UK in September. Also, the long-delayed NHS phone app is confusing. I have it installed on my own phone because I'm trying to be responsible and trying to help with the pandemic. But I'm not really sure what it's supposed to do. It hasn't really done much apart from take up a little battery life and warn me when I turn off Bluetooth. Social distancing also seems to be a distant memory and no one seems to be following it anymore, or rather, very few people seem to be following it. And on top of that, our government continues to not know what it's doing with some regional lockdowns and changing their minds about mask usage. It all seems rather inconsistent, to the point where our own Prime Minister appears to be confused about what the rules are. Let's talk about how chaotic things are at the ground level. On a recent trip to Tesco in North Buckinghamshire, I won't be more specific than that, the law about social distancing was ignored by most shoppers and floor staff as well. As for cleaning materials that are supposed to be around, well, they were totally absent. This supermarket is one of the worst supermarkets in the era, and I will avoid it from now on, if possible. The last time this type of fiasco happened at Tesco, I contacted the company, but it's not my job to police their business. So I'm just telling you, the listener, and them via this pod, I will forward a link to this episode to Tesco when this is uploaded. Really, it was so bad that I'm sure the police could have handed out fines like smarties and shut the store down, given the recently more stringent guidelines. But, incredibly, there appears to be no police anywhere for as long as I can remember. My advice is fairly obvious. Don't get complacent. COVID-19 is on the rise again, and you don't want to be complicit in spreading it. And while we're on the subject of our idiotic UK government, it appears that children could be spreaders, but our government insisted everyone went back to school and universities as well. Tell me, chancellors, tell me that wasn't about fees. I thought it was a bad idea at the time. I'm not alone in thinking that, but what the hell do I know? I'm no medical expert. And by the way, I'm absolutely opposed to the current populist right-wing clowns, but the other side of the House of Parliament went right along with this stupidity. You can totally tell that the government is floundering after backpedalling over pubs and restaurants, 
which now have a curfew imposed on them, and just the general sense of confusion all round, as I said earlier, when questioned, even Boris Johnson got his own rules mixed up. If you're in another country and wondering what is happening in the UK, now you know, it is a mess. In fact, it's a mess everywhere. I did a little research and... Do you want to hear a sobering thought? Well, I'll tell you anyway. Flu deaths amount to roughly half a million a year. In the approximately 10 months of COVID-19, over a million people have died. And those are World Health Organization figures, by the way. I didn't just dream them up. Okay, we're not quite at the level of Spanish flu from 1918 yet, where a third of the world died, but we wouldn't want to be in that position either. I'm, as you can tell from listening to this podcast, not a forgiving person, and giving the cock-ups, half-measures and outright lies regarding the severity of this health crisis, I can't help feeling that somehow the universe is reaching out to slap right-wing populists like Johnson, Bolsonaro and Trump on the backside by giving them COVID-19. Which brings us neatly on to Cineworld Temporary Closure. Yes, the massive UK-based global chain Cineworld is temporarily closing all of its cinemas from Friday. This will put... 45,000 members of staff out of work. And if you remember back to not so long ago, Cineworld does not have a pristine reputation with its staff. There was that whole scandal about them refusing to pay a living wage. Anyway, yeah. Cineworld, unsurprisingly, their shares dropped 39% with that announcement. And in the light of all this, I find it insane that our Chancellor of the Exchequer, which (laughs) you might need a translation for what that actually is if you're not from the UK, it is the person who is in charge of the UK government's budget. This guy, who is at the moment Rishi Sunak, recently said he wants things to go back to normal as soon as possible. Which is insane, because what cloud cuckoo land our politicians living in. We are not going back to normal, or anything resembling normal, for a very long time, if ever. I hate to be a pessimist, but it does not look good. There's no vaccine yet. I hope we get one. But, you know, even by some miracle, if we all get a vaccine and we can all meet again, the global economy has tanked. You know, apart from big tech, no one is really doing that well. And somehow, I don't think big tech combined are going to provide 45,000 jobs. And that's only for Cineworld. Remember, millions of people around the world are unemployed thanks to the virus. Is big tech going to provide a solution? Exactly. And well, we're just in the pre-show section and it's got to that point. Oh dear. Look, let's move on to culture for a bit and cheer ourselves up. I watched Lovecraft Country, 
although I've already talked about how I am watching and enjoying Lovecraft Country. There was a particular episode recently that I really enjoyed, and that was the one with the Monster Girl, where we get those tropes that I quite enjoy. Sympathy for the monster. Also, and this is the only downside of that episode, we have that unbelievable pace at which Monster Girl swapped her hate for love after what our murderous hero does. It is absolutely nuts. It beggars belief. It rivals Lady Anne falling for Richard III in the titular play. I also enjoyed that we got a much closer look at Korean culture, something that we rarely get a lot of in genre fiction. Yeah, I enjoyed looking at their folklore. And if you haven't gathered by now, I am, of course, utterly in love with Monster Girl, (laughs) which by my age is slightly age-inappropriate, but who cares. Let's move on to Time Bandits, a film that has no doubt been covered by millions of people before me, but it was available on Channel 4, so I recommended it to my mum. She really enjoyed it, to the extent of watching it twice, maybe three times. And because I recommended it to my mum and we talked about it, I suddenly had an urge to watch it as well, so I did that myself. And that is such a good movie. It is clearly influenced by Doctor Who and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and perhaps influenced Terry Pratchett's novels, as well as Bill and Ted. And by the way, no, I still have not seen Bill and Ted face the music yet. I'm getting to it. In Time Bandits, it was also good to see David Rappaport again. That really brings back memories. His death was such a sad loss to genre entertainment. And being the kind of person that I am... I've got to mention Terry Gilliam and John Cleese. Okay, both started as young, privileged white men and have ended old, privileged, but bitter and unpleasant white men. But they have made some great stuff, which means I can ignore their later-in-life bigoted stupidity. I've got to this stage without actually talking about what the movie is about, because I suppose I'm assuming that everyone on the planet has already seen this. But just in case, the 1981 film is about a troop of bungling burglars and the little boy who joins them. With the aid of a stolen map of time portal locations, They travel through time, looting the riches of the past. It is very Monty Python-esque, as you would expect. There is death, weapons, mass executions. It is unlike any other children's film you have ever seen. 
And the ending is just wonderfully discordant. It is the kind of ending I really appreciate and favour in my own fiction. I love that the gang are a bunch of crooked wasters rather than a bunch of do-gooders. There's something very satisfying about that. And there's a scene in the film where the little boy gets the group to pose for a photo, and it's such a great camera shot that I'm sure there's a poster out there that you can buy, and it's something that I would like on my own wall. Ian Holm, who died not so long ago, stars as Napoleon, (laughs) who my mum tells me was really funny. I thought it was pretty funny too. And yeah, that's all I have to say about Time Bandits. If you haven't seen it, please go and see it. It will not be a waste of your time. Uh, That's Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits from 1981. Next, I watched a documentary. I watched The Social Dilemma. It is a documentary about how the social media giants have deliberately addicted us to their platforms to make us a product to sell to advertisers. I can't really say that it was enjoyable, but it was definitely informative and fury-inducing. And I'd just like to take this opportunity again to thank big techs Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, Jeff Bezos, Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Look what you have done with our world. I don't really have anything else to say about the social dilemma. I think it's worth watching. I think it is absorbing enough a watch. I probably could have done without the pointless fictional vignettes. And yeah, that's the social dilemma. Let's move on to the last part of our culture section, and that is HeroQuest. The iconic board game is being reissued. Given that the game is very expensive to buy secondhand, this is a welcome return to the cult role-playing game. Hasbro has some type of Kickstarter thingy going. I can't imagine why a rich company like Hasbro needs the funds, but I suppose it's a useful way of generating a marketing buzz. You can hear more about it by going to YouTuber Bardic Broadcasts. And I've put the link in the show notes, but I might as well tell you. Just search for YouTuber Bardic Broadcasts, and you will find the chat. If you're a geek, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about, and I suspect because you are listening to this podcast, you are a geek. And that is it for culture this week. Let's move on to technology. Amazon Flex. I have now almost completed my Amazon Flex application. Despite my city not actually listed as running the service yet. On the other hand, I have read a couple of articles saying I may not be covered by my insurers. I'm going to have to contact my motor insurers to see how much using my vehicle as a courier would increase my premium to see if it's actually worth doing. I hear that it can substantially increase your premium, which I 
don't really want to do, don't really want to pay for the privilege of working, which doesn't seem right. I'll continue to let you know how that goes. What else? Okay, yeah. Uh, On the subject of Amazon, I returned something to Amazon. I talked about the Bayer Dynamic DT150 headphones not so long ago. I bought them as editing monitors, but unfortunately I had to return them after a couple of months due to the earpieces constantly slipping, which is a strange problem to have. So strange that I decided to see if anyone else had that problem, and after googling I found only exactly one other person with this problem with the DT150 headphones. This is really disappointing, and because I did that little search of problems with Bayer Dynamic headphones, I found out that the DT770s, which is probably their most popular headphone for monitoring, are also plagued by quality control issues. So, perhaps Bayer Dynamic have an endemic quality control problem. That is a pity, because I remember their DT100 headphones, I've used those in radio studios, and they definitely never suffered from problems like these. So that means I still need broadcast cans, and I like Bayer Dynamic gear, but I'm not putting up with this anymore. So, at the moment, I'm still using my JVC-HA hyphen S160 headphones as my studio monitors. These are £10 UK money headphones, and they are still the ones I recommend. I've used them for probably 20 years now, maybe even more. The only problem with them is that they do wear out, and then you have to buy another pair. At £10 a pop doesn't seem like much, but it definitely accumulates over the years. One other thing I might try doing is just simply give up on headphones and buy studio monitors like the Yamaha HS5s, which are probably the industry standard studio reference monitors. And at least if I do that, it's a one-time investment, as it is fairly unlikely I'll ever have to replace them, unlike a pair of delicate headphones. While we're talking about monitoring headphones, let's talk about podcast sound quality. I'll give you a little update. I've been talking about this recently on the pod, and I tried all the fixes I mentioned in the last Geek Pod I did, so not the one before this, which was Doctor Who Terror of the Zygons, but the one before that, and the result is nothing. My environment where I record, especially at rush hour, is far too noisy to fix in post. Things like noise reduction and compression in an untreated room with traffic in the background just does not work. There's so many different frequencies involved that noise reduction will mess up even the audio you want to keep, and compression will increase the low sounds to match 
the peaks, and the problem with that is it will increase the sounds you don't want to keep as well as the ones you do want to keep. Again, not ideal in an untreated room with traffic in the background, and just as I said that, a car went past. The lesson here is, if you remember back to basic, garbage in, garbage out. The next thing I wanted to talk about is mic preamps. I've been thinking about this lately, and I decided to test my Triton Audio Fethead against the cranked internal preamp of my Yamaha MG06 mixer. What I did was I tested by setting the level and gain to a level where I could record, but without the mic plugged into the socket, so I could eliminate environmental noise. The results? Okay, the mixer with its onboard preamps cranked has a slightly lower noise floor than when I used the external preamp. The conclusion is that Given that my Behringer XM8500 mic is almost a clone of the global standard, that is the SM58 Dynamic Mic from Shure, I'd say to podcasters, unless you have a mic that is said to be hard to drive, like the Shure SM7B, you might not need a mic preamp at all. If you want more information about mics, preamps, and noise floors. Newman Mics have written an article on the matter. And strangely enough, for a mic and preamp manufacturer, they are equally skeptical about the generally thought universal need for a preamp. If you go to Newman, that's N-E-U-M-A-N-N.com slash home studio slash E-N slash will hyphen a hyphen better hyphen preamp hyphen give hyphen you hyphen lower hyphen noise. That's a very long link. Google Newman and Google preamps and you'll find that page. Yeah, so what I'm saying is you might be able to save some money and just not buy a preamp. Okay. Still on the subject of audio stuff, Reaper, the digital audio workstation. Now that I have my new glasses, now that I can actually see the damn screen, I am starting to play with Reaper. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. It's not that more complicated than Audacity, and it allows for non-destructive editing. So it's a simple DAW, and yeah, I'll also let you know how that goes. Finally, in the text section, Windows 7 updates. This sounds like something I have mentioned before. Here is an update about Windows 7 updates. If you are still a Windows 7 user, like me, and you use Windows Security Essentials as your security suite, we will still get updates until 2023. So no immediate rush to change. Of course, there are other bits of the operating system that will become vulnerable, but at least we can say that Windows Security Essentials will still get security updates until that date. 
which is slightly reassuring, I suppose. But at some stage, I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do, how I'm going to move on. And sorry about the croaky voice, but I've been talking a long time tonight. As I have been a little, well, there's no other way to say it, depressed lately, let's move into the creative section and my one topic today is how to survive as a creative. If you want to be any sort of an artist, how are you going to survive while you do that? I'm not going to read out the first line of my notes because it just says, you want to be any sort of an artist, do you? Do you? Ha 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 ha. Yeah, it goes on a bit like that quite obnoxiously. Sorry about that. But yeah, you're going to need some way of supporting yourself. James Herbert, famous horror writer, was a city copywriter, and he headed an advertising firm, so really, he was a lucky git. The second option is to have an understanding family, and even if you're scraping by, expect it to be a struggle, unless you are a rich Trustafarian. Speaking of which, I recently did my annual joust with the council tax people, and it is always fun trying to explain being self-employed but with nil income. Oh dear, where was I? What a mess these notes are, they're all over the place. Anyway, back to surviving as creative. The alternative to any of this is to just give up and do something else, which is what happens to a lot of people who have that creative spark in them. There's just no way they can support their career. Or, as I said, try some of the above and scrape by and be prepared to be mocked by all around you for daring to try. There's an ACDC song that comes to mind called It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll, and that really says it all. You know what? Forget about getting to the top. Just making a living will be hell. So, what am I saying here? Well, it all sounds very pessimistic, doesn't it? I haven't really said anything that will help you survive as a creative. What I'm saying is prepare to struggle. I mean, generally, just prepare to struggle in life anyway, but as any sort of artist, prepare for that struggle to be even harder. And with that anti-pep talk, let's move on to the after-show section. Sorry about that, that really wasn't very positive. I couldn't find anything positive to say about my experience being a creative other than while I enjoyed being a journalist, while it lasted, since then, it hasn't been great. Okay, let's just change the topic and end on something completely different. I'm going to call this section Nib Nebula. And I have to warn you at the top of this item that Saying these words out feels like deja vu. I have a strong feeling that this is something I would have mentioned in the pod before, so I am sorry if I'm repeating myself. Although 
This isn't a pod about fountain pens. There are much better shows out there for that. I am a fountain pen enthusiast. In fact, it is the only type of pen I use. So, let's just call this continuing foray into fountain pens something appropriately geeky and sci-fi and spacey, hence Nib Nebula. The subject of this Nib Nebula item, and by the way, now that I've said Nib Nebula, I bet you the next time we bring up fountain pens in this podcast, I will have forgotten that I'm calling this section Nib Nebula, so let's just say it is Nib Nebula in this particular episode. What it might be later on, who knows? Anyway, where was I? Yeah, the subject of this Nib Nebula item is what fountain pen makers make their own nibs and which ones outsource. It's a complicated mess, but I found an interesting post on the Fountain Pen Network forum. (laughs) Yes, there is a forum just for fountain pen enthusiasts, and that post attempts to answer that question. Again, if you can't be bothered to look for the link in the show notes, and who could blame you, you can just Google it. This post is useful because the nib is the most important part of a fountain pen and should heavily inform your decision on which pen to buy. Sometimes a cheap pen will have a great nib, or an expensive pen will have a terrible nib. This guide will help you make a start in your research. If you can hear a few distant clicks, that is the bones in my body cracking. I mean, not cracking like I'm being torn to bits, but cracking in... uh, mildly arthritic manner. Oh, while we're on the subject of pens, let me relate to you two things that might amuse you, because we could all do with a bit of amusement at the end of this fairly depressing podcast. Firstly, I have a little story about how (laughs) nerdy and obnoxious I can be. And, okay... Let's see, how am I going to say this? About, well, more than 10 years ago, I was working for a firm in Vancouver, Canada, and I had a manager who had a look at my incident notebook. I was working as a security, I hate saying officer, which is the correct term, because it sounds so grandiose. I'll just say security guard. Anyway, I had this incident notebook, and I only ever filled in odd pages. So I'd start at page one, and then move on to page three, and then you get the idea. And the reason for that is, if you've got a flipped notebook, it is easier to read if you don't write on the reverse, even pages. Anyway, my manager objected to this. I argued about it. It became a very heated exchange. And soon after that, I was fired. (laughs) What has that got to do with Phantom Man? It's absolutely nothing. But it does have something to do with stationery. And it's a funny story. 
funny in retrospect, not funny at the time. The next weird little story I have to tell you is, I don't know, is this dyslexia? Okay, I have mentioned before that sometimes because I don't hear a word in conversation, I think it's said one way when it's actually said another, and I don't find that out until much later. And sometimes that can also extend to seeing how words are written. And I'll see a word that's written a certain way, and I will misinterpret how that is written in my brain and say something else. So, for example, for years and years and years, I thought the word biblical was biblical. Okay, that is ridiculous, isn't it? But anyway, I thought I'd caught all those words over the years that I have been missaying, but not so. Recently, I was watching a YouTube channel about a fountain pen, about a Mont Blanc fountain pen, in fact. And there is a series of Mont Blanc fountain pens that I'm not sure what the word means in German, but they're called the Meisterstuck series. I think they're made internally by hand or something. Anyway, it's very boutique, it's very expensive, and the word is Meisterstuck. The thing is, until I heard someone say that word, Meisterstuck, I have always seen the word written as Meisterstruck. <laughs> yeah, and when that person said Meisterstuck, not Meisterstruck, I had a look at the word. I went through each letter one at a time and realised, yeah, all these years I had been saying the word wrong. Luckily, this never came up in conversation, so I didn't make myself look like a complete imbecile, but yeah, these things happen all the time. Weird. In retrospect, I'm wondering if either of those stories was actually that funny. I am quite glad that we are at the end of this episode. The show that you're listening to is produced, presented, and edited by me, Roy Martha, a writer. Martha is spelt M-A-T-H-U-R. You can find more about me or get in touch at RoyMartha.com. If you want to help, please review and rate the show on whatever platform you listen and recommend it to a friend or an enemy. You can tip me a few galactic credits by going to my website and clicking on support. You can also read my novel, The Horus Box, which is now available on Amazon. In fact, it's been available for quite some time, so please go and buy it and read it. And that's it. You were listening to Captain Roy's Rocket Radio Show, Crash, the UK podcast for the culture geek, technology nerd and creative wizard. This was episode number 337, recorded on Thursday the 8th of October 2020. And the time at the end of the show is 0202.41. And the uptime, looking in the corner of my computer screen on the Sestray, is 110 hours. It was much more than that recently, but my computer completely packed up and decided not to cooperate and I had to reboot, which is really annoying, because I've gamified... <laughs> the length 
of time that I can keep my computer running. If this was Linux, maybe it would have been a lot longer. I know for a fact it would have been up a lot longer. Enough waffle. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. Bye.